HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We'll be talking all things Southern, A to Z, today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And you know, for the longest time, and I dare say probably still to some extent, Americans looked to Europe as the standard bearer for culture and culinary traditions, often ignoring what had developed right here in our own regions. But no one knows pride and value in their own region better than Southerners. Just read most any story set in the South, and you are transported to a palpable time and place where long-held traditions reign and long conversations and good food envelop you in a blanket of hospitality. And Southerners protect what is theirs, sometimes with questions, and they don't always agree. Uh, Take peaches. Who has the best peaches, for example? Well... Garden and Gun magazine, the arbiters of all fine things Southern, has come out with a delightful new book, and it's called S is for Southern, to help us sort out some of these facts. It's an encyclopedia of sorts in that it's arranged A to Z. Fun. And it's all things Southern, life, culture, history, as well as contemporary tastes. Joining us from Charleston today, we have born and bred Southerner, Philip Rhodes. Philip is the executive managing editor of Garden and Gun magazine, and he's the magazine's resident food expert, and was very involved in the conception, writing, and overall editing of their newest book, S is for Southern. 
Rhodes was part of the team that led Garden and Gun to its National Magazine Award for General Excellence in 2015 and produced and co-authored their previous book, The Southerner's Cookbook, a New York Times bestseller and a James Beard Award nominee. Previously, he was executive managing editor at Cooking Light, where he introduced such programs as the Sunday Strategist Digital Meal and Cooking Light Garden. He was born in North Carolina, raised in Tennessee, so he knows a bit about being Southern. Welcome, Philip. Hi, thank you so much for having me. How are you? Fine, thanks. I just have one question. We have to get out of the air right away. Are you wearing a bow tie? <laughs> no, I am not today. Well, nope, nope. And I've already had the seersucker dry cleaned, and it's hanging at the back of the closet. We well, won't be getting that back out until spring 2018. Interesting, because bow tie is one of the entries for sure. Was seersucker is, an entry yes. as well? I, I, that is a skill I do not possess, which is why I'm so glad there are books like S is for Southern and people like Garden and Gun to tell me how to wear a bow tie appropriately. But why? Why is it Southern? I don't, I mean, how did that happen? You know what? The great thing about being Southern is there are so many connections anywhere you look for them. And now you've prepared me to talk about food, but I'm going to. I know, to I just, the bow tie just came to, to me. The bee chapter <laughs> All right. For bow tie, and perhaps we can discover together. <laughs> you see, he can just go right to be. It, um, it is a, it, and I said it's a, a delightful book. It's also easy to use and fun. I mean, you just sort of flip through any page, A to Z, and you come up with some fact or some, you know, little essay or information piece of information that you might not have been sure about. Well, you know, I'm so glad you said that because that is exactly what we aimed for. Um, I, I don't know about you or what your age range might be, but... I'm in my mid-40s, and I grew up with a set of encyclopedias on my parents' bookshelf. <laughs> you know, uh, they were, might have been sold door-to-door <laughs> back in the day. And I remember as a kid just pouring over the encyclopedia. You know, you just pick one, yeah. pick the letter in, and you could learn about so Random, much. random this stuff. This is not a set <laughs> of books. It is one book, but there are 500 entries that... That's exactly what we hope people do. It's not an academic tome. It's not the be-all, end-all. There are 500 entries, but we could have done 5,000 entries. <clears throat> but, yeah, dip in. Just just open a page and start going and yeah. see well, what you find. I, you know, when I wrote um, to you or, or your assistant earlier, I, I in scan doing a random scan of the book... I mean, it really does beg the question, what is Southern? How do we define what is Southern? That is, that is a really good question, and it's so incredibly open to interpretation because there are the, the instant things you think of, um, you know, camellias. Well, the South is known for having beautiful camellias. They thrive here. They thrive especially here in Charleston. But they are, in fact, imports from China. Or Japan, um, from Asia. And so you find that, um, hopefully, what we all hope is that the South is an incredibly welcoming place that brings tradition in. So new things become a part of the wider Southern tradition over time. Right. Well, and in particular, yes, I did, I asked you to focus on food. And, and food in particular, you know, you wonder, is it 
because the recipes originated in the South or, or because the ingredients are indigenous to the South. And yet there are many things that people probably would say, but wait a minute, that's been in my family tradition for, and no one's been from the South forever and ever. And yet the, the South is very quick to correct anyone about what, <laughs> what belongs to them, right? Well, I take a slightly different approach. I think it belongs to us all yes, because yes. there again, the things that you, the people casually associate with the South, like mayonnaise. Well, mayonnaise is a French sauce right. that came to America and um, took on a life of its own here in the South. So given that the South is a part of America, which is a nation of immigrants, it reflects any number of possible traditions and backgrounds. Now, wait a minute. I have a big question. Aspic? How aspic. can aspic be Southern? <laughs> well, those are the things that somehow just through through association or through people's traditions or what they grew up with feel Southern. And the feeling is often as important as the fact. And so aspic is something that we feel quite comfortable as claiming, being very familiar to Southerners. And to people who aren't familiar, we hope the book introduces, explains, and helps people understand why we treasure, of all things, tomato aspic. <laughs> That's interesting. It was something I would never have thought of. But then you think it's it's still served there more than you find it anywhere else, you know, like in the North. Although it is kind of having a, a renaissance of sorts, it I is. think, throughout, well, I, in, in I the think culinary it, world. I love that. It's To me, it's so wonderfully odd that I'm attracted to the, the oddities. And so um, I... We made sure that when we published our cookbook that it included a tomato aspic. Um, it's, we based our recipe. We were fortunate. It was shared by a, a little drugstore lunch counter in Mountain Brook, Alabama, that has served aspic since, gosh, I th- the early 1900s, mid-1900s. Mid-1900s. Um, and so for that reason, we, we wanted to be able to share it with other readers. <laughs> you know, it's that jellied kind of substance that coats some foods that you usually push aside into the side of your plate. and Not the well, Southerners, me, they eat it. It's right? another Southern thing, a Bloody Mary, sort ah. of just in a different state. Ah. You know, if you, uh-huh. if you like or are familiar with a Bloody Mary, um, which is something else that whether or not it is in fact Southern feels Southern, mm-hmm. then it's just a hop, skip, and a jump over to tomato aspic, right? <laughs> I guess so. Well, aside from these wonderful entries, and we're gonna, we'll talk more about those later, but I mean, and there, as you said, there are over 500 of these um, interesting entries. Everything, culture, food, um, you know, the lifestyle and music life, and people art, and people. history yes, yes everything people. hopefully and also within these entries were part which are part of the entries some are expanded and they are terrific essays by many well-known writers not just southern writers particularly but writers and personalities and a, a few that just jumped out at me and and who also are no strangers to our uh, to our radio station here, have been on my show and other people's shows, are John T. Edge, mm-hmm. um, Roy Blount, mm-hmm. uh, Matt and Ted Lee, of course, right. Jessica B. Harris, who has a program here on the, on the network. Um, so many different people who have written essays for this book as well about 
a particular item that was, um, I guess, important to them. How did these, and, and all of the, not and that also includes all of the editors and many of the contributors to Garden and Gun Magazine, how did these more expanded essays come about? What was the decision-making on that? That was based out of the our experience with Garden and Gun Magazine, which is in its 10th year. And if you're familiar with the publication, you know it is very literate. Um, there are stories. There are what people now call long-form stories, mm-hmm. because everyone's gotten so used to 140-character tweets right. <laughs> that a 3,000 or 5,000 or 6,000-word story feels enormous. But to us, it feels very natural. So all of those people whom you have just named, and many others are people with whom we have an ongoing relationship as we are crafting each issue of the magazine. And so you know, they're people we know. They're people we talk to frequently. And as we were putting this book together a couple of years ago, some people have a natural area of expertise. Naturally, we want to talk to Jessica Harris about um, culinary traditions. Uh, some of the other people, Roy Blunt, he's a humorist. So what is Roy Blunt's take on, say, gizzards or, gizzards. <laughs> or something like that? Right. To give the, the creative talent that we are so fortunate to be able to work with and to share with our audience, to give them a little a different medium and a little room to run and have a little fun as we all went through this project together as proud Southerners to, you know, talk about what they wanted to talk about or what their particular area of expertise was. So it was, it was just a very organic process, really. Yeah, well, um, I was going to ask you about the whole, the in, in addition to these essays and that process, I would be interested to see what made it in the trash bin on your computer. So what, what got cut? There, well, you, know, you must have, you must have had so, so many entries. The way we started this book was our editorial staff here in Charleston all gathered around the conference table one morning. We booked a day. It was going to be brainstorm day. And everyone from our staff is Southern and has a very strong point of view. And we're, we're creative industry types, so no one here is very shy. So we're all going to sit around the table. We had these ginormous Post-it notes. Um, you know, the kind that are the size of a painting. (laughs) And we went through letter by letter by letter, and people would just kind of holler out their entry or, you know, explain what happened to them this one time. And remember when we did this? And we wound up, I think, with more than almost 2,000 maybe entries. Oh, I can imagine. Right. And so I'm looking at the list. I saved it because I... just wanted to compare, you know, what made the cut, what didn't. So it's sitting here on my desk. Let me take a look. I think, let's see, I was a big proponent of J.R. Ewing and who shot J.R., but I don't think that one made the cut of the first book, but to me was a big southern pop culture moment. That one we might be saving for a volume two down the road. Um, yeah, I would imagine that there are plenty more like that. But as far as the food, um, the food items, I you seem to. I mean, the book seems to have covered just about everything that I could think of. Things I didn't Good. even know. I mean, you know, the well, you know, like I I wasn't even sure about um, uh, 
Well, the Goo Goo Clusters. I, I wasn't really sure about the history of Goo Goo Clusters. And if, no uh, one know, if you don't know about Goo Goo Clusters, tell us about that. Oh, well, there's something that you need to learn. If you like the following items, chocolate, marshmallow, and peanuts. Do you, do you like those, follow, oh, those items? Yeah, of course. Okay, all right. They are all clustered together <laughs> in a delicious candy bar made in Tennessee, and that is a goo-goo cluster. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you found things to learn. I have, too. Um, I'm, as you said, I was raised in East Tennessee, so I'm a mountain. I'm borderline hillbilly. Let's just call it what it is. Um, so I didn't grow up with shellfish, oysters, none of that. You are, now yeah, that I, land, now that I live kid. in Charleston, of course, oysters are a huge part of the food culture. Um, yeah, I spent. I was raised in Tennessee, went to college in Pennsylvania, spent most of my adult life in Birmingham, Alabama, and it just wasn't wasn't something that was on my radar. So, uh, gosh, probably about two years ago, I was at an oyster roast, which is something that people here in the Charleston area love to do when the temperature turns. Um, our oysters here are very clustery. Um, there's not as much oyster farming here. And so you get bushels and bushels of oysters, clusters, and you pop them over an open fire just so you throw a wet burlap over them, let them steam just a little bit so they barely pop open, which is great for an oyster novice like me because if you've ever truly tried to crack open an oyster, <laughs> it takes some practice. So it's great that they're open. So I'm at this oyster roast, and I pop open an oyster, and the oyster is there, but so is another object, a pea crab. Have you ah. ever come across a pea crab inside an oyster? <laughs> Don't can't say that I have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. They are probably about the size of the tip of your pinky hmm. and sort of a similar color, actually. They're kind of a sort of a sherbety orange color, and they live inside the oyster. They, they are a symbiotic, it's a symbiotic relationship. So I did what anyone in, what year was that, 2015, does. I immediately turned to the Internet, took a picture of it, and posted it to social media saying, what is happening? <laughs> what is this thing? Ah, what do I do with it? And, of course, everyone wrote back, oh, well, you eat it, obviously. It's in the oyster. It's a crab. And that is exactly what I did. And that is what led to the entry in the P chapter about pea crabs. Pea crabs. <laughs> so I came back to the office. We all That was on a Saturday or a Sunday, something like that. Got in the office Monday morning, and we're all talking about everyone here was like, oh, yeah, it's a sign of good luck when you find a pea crab in your oyster. So interesting. I was fortunate, and it is quite a tasty little thing. It's like the sweetest, tiniest bite of crab oh. you can ever come across. A little piece of low country culture that you can there all you take away with you now. Well, and, and low country. Now, it seems to me, I don't know whether it was just me that I kept queuing into different items from that region, but there must have been, of course, the magazine is, is based in Charleston, right? The headquarters mm -hmm. of the magazine. But I would imagine the editors and contributors are all, from all over the South. What, I mean, was there one region that seemed to dominate um, you know, the, the entries, or did, did you make a concerted effort to... The South is a huge region. I mean, area. Oh, I, I hope there is not one region that dominates the entries. That would be a, a tremendous disappointment. Mm -hmm. um, I hope it reflects all of the South, because as each of us 
was sitting around the table. And then as we talked to our contributors, who, as you have said, John T. Edge is based in Oxford, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Um, Roy Blunt spends a lot of time in New Orleans. So hopefully the whole reflects the South all the way from Texas to Maryland and everywhere in between. Yeah, and it's up at Maryland. It's at, that always gets me that Maryland is considered the South, but you know. <laughs> I understand. I got it. I understand that. Um, be, yeah, because I, the, a lot of the food items that I was, you know, and I was really um, zoning in on the on the food items and the and some of the historic uh, foods that, of course, identify the the South and. You know, biscuits, biscuits and gravy. Mm-hmm. You know, gumbo and grits, and and um, yeah, it seems that it was hard to um, identify. In at some in some points, it was hard to identify which part of the South some of these things were coming from. Which I guess is a good thing. I mean, it was just southern. Well, some things like biscuits. Again, now they belong to everybody. Right, right. <laughs> but um, let's see, something like you mentioned gravy. So um, red-eye gravy is more centered in the Appalachian region. Yeah. <clears throat> and it does not yet perhaps belong to everybody in the same way that maybe a pea crab doesn't. You know, I am... Southern born, have lived almost my entire life in the South, and that was a completely new thing to me. Mm-hmm. And I hope, also, well, I'm very hopeful, um, as any new author would be, <laughs> but I hope that people who are native Southerners who've lived there here all their lives find interesting things that maybe they didn't know about or wanted to learn more about or traditions from other areas of the South that they were less familiar with. Well, we're going to give a little teaser list of some of those items. Um, Not give away everything, but we will give away a few (laughs) teaser items when we come back after a short break. So stay with us. I went down to North Carolina Realized there was surely nothing finer This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollock scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollock is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollock's purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. Hi, we're back. And of course, my my faithful engineer, David Tedashore, knows what music to pick for every break. <laughs> That's great. And I'm talking with Philip Rhodes, uh, the executive managing editor of Garden and Gun magazine, and we're talking all about their new book, S is for Southern. 
and it's a it's S is for Southern, and that's a guide to all things Southern A to Z, and it's it is an encyclopedia A to Z. I promised you that we would give a little tease of some of the of the fun items. And Philip, um, before we get to doing that uh, music, we just heard some some Southern music, but singers. There are, are um, you know lists of entries of singers who are so influential to Southern culture, uh, songwriters, novelists, playwrights, chefs. Um, mm-hmm. Any uh, well, Edna Lewis, for instance, is is one of the entries. Um, and Leah Chase. Uh, so these are these are very important people in the whole Southern um, lexicon of food. Really. Oh, absolutely, very much so. And um, anyone else that comes to mind that you would um, mention? Oh gosh. Uh, well, I have to tell you, being from East Tennessee, mm-hmm. being actually from Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is one town over from Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, which is where Dolly Parton is from. <laughs> oh well. You couldn't have a Southern <laughs> Encyclopedia without Dolly Parton, right? I guess not. <clears throat> yeah, that's that's terrific. Well, you, know, yes. you had talked about um, biscuits earlier, and I just I couldn't resist because <laughs> there was the entry talks about the history of biscuits, whether they were baking powder biscuits, I would assume they were baking powder biscuits, but it was about the rise and fall, at, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> to use the pun of biscuits. <laughs> I'll bet not too many people knew that they went in and out of popularity. Tell us about that a little bit. Well, think about the time before you could go to the grocery store and buy baking soda and baking powder. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> right? Um, and so that led us down a historical avenue toward the beaten biscuit, where air, what would cause the biscuit to rise and the layers to separate a little bit, was actually beaten into the biscuit with something sort of like a baseball bat. Um, that That's what it took to make a biscuit at that time prior to the advent of being able to go and buy these ingredients. And so the biscuit entry by Kathleen Purvis at the um, Charlotte newspaper is one of my favorites because the advice it gives is so true. Ultimately, to know biscuits, you have to make biscuits, Mm -hmm. and you must do it over and over and over again. And you also have to... How the biscuit turns out is completely dependent on where you are, not only sort of higher altitude, that kind of higher altitude baking thing, but is it a very dry day? Is it a very humid day? Do you adjust your liquid just a little bit more or less to really get a feel for biscuits? You have to get your hands dirty. You got to, you know, they're coated in the flour and the lard and the butter and the buttermilk, and you are. It's a tactile thing. <laughs> that is so true. And they never quite turn out exactly the same. They turn out the same, but not exactly the same. Just for all those reasons you mentioned. And it, it is, it's amazing. Well, and then, of course, cornbread, a, a super, um, what we identify with the South so much, cornbread, they kind of beat the biscuit out of uh, popularity there for a while. Right. Well, um, you mentioned native foods, sort of where foods came from, right. and certainly this is a prime example of a food that was already on the continent before we arrived. So this is an example of right. something that we learned from our 
environment and from the people who were here before we were. Yeah, and of course, there's that uh, battle uh, question of how cornbread should be between the North and the South, and the Northerners like to put a lot of sugar or honey in it, and the Southerners say, no, there should be no honey in it, no no sugar in it. Um, Where do you fall? You know what? I, once again, am going to go my own way and say, I think you should make your cornbread however you like it best. Uh, How's that a polite answer? <laughs> <laughs> P is for polite. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, um, well, you know, you, you, you broach a, another topic that is, you know, so much part of our conversation in food and food history today. And, and Food that was here, people who were already on the continent, our Native Americans, and of course they had corn and they taught us about corn. But then also a lot of things that are claimed Southerner or claimed to be comfort food. Um, you know, we talk about cultural appropriation and, and about food of the slaves. And do we call it Southern food or do, or do we recognize it as being having West African roots? And uh, I think that we've done a good job of, um, of kind of incorporating everybody in in the love of the food. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I think you, we all have to just be honest. Um, corn was here. Tomatoes were here. Okra was not. Binny mm-hmm. was not. Mm-hmm. Um, field peas were not. <laughs> Peanuts were not. Um, so much of, like I said it earlier, America is a country of immigrants, and everything came from, nearly everything came from somewhere else. Um, something like macaroni and cheese or mayonnaise. Um, that's part of what makes it wonderful and part of what I think Southerners genuinely appreciate. Southerners seem to have a um, perhaps more of an interest in history than other people. Um, and what we have hoped to achieve here is to share that history in the most accurate way possible. You said that very nicely. I, and it reminded me, I was at a program the other night. We were remembering the editor, Judith Jones, who for the editor, the cookbook editor for Knopf, who was a champion of, of a lot of uh, international food writers. And one thing that she was part of her philosophy that one of the speakers mentioned was that she thought that there was nothing more truly American than immigrants, the cooking of immigrants in America. Mm-hmm. And you just you just voiced that in another way. And, and I think you're absolutely right that, you know, we, we are all of these parts um, cooking together. But the South, of course loves to have their name and imprint on all these things. And I, I don't, I say that, I say that <laughs> kindly and, and, you know, and, and with love, I don't mean to be <laughs> badgering you on that, but there are some things that just kind of grabbed me. And as I say, these are the teasers we're going to give people. Okay. All right. Go for um, beer cheese. What the heck is beer cheese? (laughs) Well, it's a delightful spread made of beer and cheese that is incredibly popular in Kentucky. Hmm. Now, whether it's, you know, People didn't arrive in Kentucky, and there was cheese growing on a tree, (laughs) you know. Um, But it has become a tradition that is associated with Kentucky that, to me, is a delightful one to be able to share with folks. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely true. Um, There, of course, dark and stormy. That's that's had a real um, rise in popularity recently with the cocktail culture, too. 
Tell us Absolutely, about the and the south being adjacent to the Caribbean, and Bermuda being on the way to North Carolina. Um, so. The rum culture was big in the South before bourbon took over, so Dark and Stormy has a strong Southern tie. Mm. And something that is, you know, creeping over the border into the North and you're finding it more and more on uh, in restaurants on the menu, and that's grits. Mm-hmm. Yes, which, there again, that is our version of a tradition that occurs elsewhere. Um, if you... If I were Italian American and from um, I don't know the north Vermont, (laughs) (laughs) we might instead be talking about polenta instead of grits. Right, they're kind of the same thing, but grits are our version, and so that's what. Hey, we're we are southern. We're here to talk about the south. So instead of talking about polenta, we're going to talk about grits. Yeah. Well, now here's an area where I know southerners argue amongst themselves, and that's the great. A lot of people probably don't even realize that there's a war going on. It's the Peach War. Yes. Well, I don't quite know where I stand on this one. (laughs) Being from Tennessee, I grew up thinking that Georgia was the Peach State. And, in fact, it is. However... Um, my colleague, one of the people around that table when we were all brainstorming ideas, Elizabeth Hutchison, her family has a peach farm. They've had it for generations. Um, it's been a part of their family in South Carolina, which produces more peaches than Georgia. So who is the peach state? Well, let's both be peach states and come together to the table and share a slice of pie. Everybody's happy. Yeah. How can, I mean, how can you argue about such a wonderful thing? Yeah, peaches. Right. And exactly. of course, and in the pea section. More peaches for everybody is not a problem that's to right. have, where, regardless of where they come from. And then in the pea, in the pea section, we also have the pecans. Yes, we do. Such I'm a, so glad you a, said it that yeah. way. That's the way I say it. <laughs> pecans, yeah. Pecans. Yeah. Um, such a southern, such a southern item, and of course now with the, the holidays approaching, I mean the sales. You know, it's interesting that the 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 when do the nuts really uh, in season? Is this is this harvest time for pecans? I think do of you it know? as fall. Fall. Yes. That's what I think too. And then because they mature on the tree and then they start to fall, and that's when you let them let them kind of dry out, loosen, let the meats, nut meats loosen from the shell, and That's then you're fine. ready just about in time for Thanksgiving to serve a pecan pie. See, we see it around Thanksgiving, but of course, if you go down south, you have pecan pie any time of year, right? Sure. Why not? <laughs> it's why good, not? Right. right. Why not is right. <laughs> well, here's a toughie, and that's fried chicken. Yes. Who gets to claim fried chicken? Oh, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I don't. I mean, that, that is not the important thing to me about fried chicken. Um, honestly, the important thing to me about fried chicken is that I get to have some. Right. But it is written. It's one of the entries. And, you know, these, these things are all there. And, and as much as people, and I think what would be fun to see if you have, I don't know if, if on the magazine's website or anything, you have a, a comments column, but oh, people do, who yes. get who people who can give their reactions to some of these entries and say, now wait just one minute, you know. <laughs> oh, we're yes, believe me, everyone here is stealing themselves for the. But you forgot blank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that may be. That's why and I said I'd like to see have your tr- forgotten. It. Right. That is true, or it may be one of those items that um, you know you. 
if you've ever worked on a book or anything like that, you you have all these great ideas, and you go to your editor and the publisher of the book, and they say, that's great. We only need 500 of them. And then the process begins again, where you must whittle and whittle and whittle and choose and choose and choose, and you... You hope you've chosen the best. Well, and then you hope the book is a success and you get to do it again. Absolutely. And this, as you know, you said, it's only one volume and you talked about the encyclopedias of your youth. Yes, the South alone could have multiple volumes. For, for, <laughs> I know. We really could f- do a just series. Just for food. And just like for a, food. a whole book about the A's. Yeah, right. And all the way to, well, it gets a little harder when you get to X, Y, and Z. It does. Yeah. Um, but well, and maybe it's called, we do an X, Y, and Z combo. And actually, um, the book is, where's the, I want to get the exact, you can give me the exact title, I know, but it is a guide, what is it, the guide to... It is uh, S is for Southern, a guide, a guide to the South from Absinthe to Zydeco. Right. That's you said. Yes. I'm looking at it right now. A guide to the South from Absinthe to Zydeco. All right. Now, Absinthe might, that might surprise people. Why don't you tell us why Absinthe is considered from the South? Um, not necessarily from the South, but so very, very heavily associated with New Orleans, mm-hmm. which has such a strong French tradition, as you know. And so there again, it came to the South, it became part of the South, and thus is something that we're able to all enjoy together. Yep. And um, Ted Bro, he was, uh, he, I mean, it was outlawed um, for so many years. I mean, yes. uh, that one, it was not allowed because of the wormwood or the, you know, the... Uh, right, the hallucinations that right. it was thought to cause and that it was um, hazardous or, quote, morally degenerative than other spirits. Um, but that... Uh, the right. past. Now we can all enjoy it. And well, Ted Bro, a Southerner, he in down in New Orleans, he was the one who figured out the. Well, you have to read the book to find that out. Right. We can't give everything. We can't give away everything right away. Right. <laughs> but then, because we've got so many things that we could talk about, we could talk about po' boys and pot liquor, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean the list goes on and on. And I just and and all the as I say, all the personalities the and. The chefs and and their contributions to the history of of Southern cuisine, as well as the current cuisine, which is you know it, it does it's not stuck in the past. That's, that is true. Which is another great thing about America, about the South, is it's always changing. Right. So more people, new people, different people, and what was one way twenty years ago is a different way twenty years from now. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's just, as I say, it's it's a delightful book because it, it incorporates everything. Food was my focus, but it, it's fun because it's a little piece of culture and a big piece of culture, actually, from the South. And I think that someone, everyone, will find something in that book that will that will please them and make them smile. And I thank you, Philip, for spending time talking about it with us. Um, Philip Rhodes, the managing executive managing editor for Garden and Gun magazine. It was and my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Again, the title of the book is S's for Southern, A Guide to the South from Absinthe to Zydeco. And thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.